You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Serendipity, it's one of my favorite words. And today we hear about a chance discovery out in the wild on the Big Island that happened earlier this year that has conservationists jumping for joy. A native plant that was known to grow up to 35 feet tall and was thought to be extinct is thriving, given some TLC. Its Hawaiian name is still unknown, but its scientific name, and let's hope I don't butcher this, Delicia arguti dentata. Callie Barnes, a propagation technician with a group called Three Mountain Alliance, and uh, Amber Namaka Whitehead of Kamehameha Schools shared more about this success story. We start with Callie to learn how all this unfolded. It was April of 2021, and I was on a seed collecting mission at this Upper Kona restoration site, and I was out in the field really just looking for Iliahi seed, sandalwood, and I came across and exclosures or these little fenced areas and there were no plants inside them that I could see but I just kept kind of taking a look around and I saw this plant something I hadn't seen on that side before and you know it looked like a a Hawaiian lobeliad to me but I wasn't positive I was hoping it was going to be something that I could propagate so I took pictures and made sure to you know tag the location. I collected some seeds as I didn't want them to be eaten just in case it was an important species and as soon as I got back into service I uh, sent some photos to Joan Yoshioka our program administrator and a rare plant enthusiast. She was able to help with the identification. So I imagine they were like wait a minute, <laughs> this plant's supposed to be extinct, you know? What was that conversation like? Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, well, it looks like a Delicia. Everybody was just really stunned and extremely excited. It's so rare that you find a plant that was extinct in the wild. And then it was just serendipity, right? You weren't looking for it. You just came across it. Definitely serendipity. I never expected or thought that I would come across a plant like that. To protect the plant, it was important that we you know, keep it confidential until it was ready to be released to the public. And so, gosh, I mean, were you able to then what, go back up there and retrieve more seeds, or did you just take the seeds that you have and try and germinate them? I took the seeds to the Volcano Rare Plant Facility. Jamie Inoka was able to propagate them as a propagation technician for TMA, uh, I don't, we're not permitted for me to grow endangered plants. So how does this work with Kamehameha Schools and what they've been able to, to do to, to keep the species going? They're the landowners, so it was really up to them to kind of drive what happened with these seeds and uh, what happened to the plants. Kamehameha Schools has started fencing the area, and we then went out and we were able to plant some of the keiki that came from the seeds that I originally harvested. Dinamaka, you want to pick up the story from there? Yeah, I, I, might, I might go back a little. This is such a storied plant from this particular mm. landscape. Like, it's so unique. There's nothing else like it in Hawaii. The early naturalists in the like, like the early 1900s when they were still common, they described them as, as growing up to 35 feet tall, perfectly straight, no branches with this big round crown of leaves. And they grew amongst the core trees and they were so tall that the, the, the little poofs of leaves would be up in the canopy of the core trees. And when you walk through the forest, all you would see was their, was their trunks you know, here and there all over the place. So when you look down from the top of the crater, you would see all the round little heads poking out of the, the crowns of the core. As a botanist, and I know for other botanists, everyone's heard of this plant. 
anytime I went to this particular area, I would always be scanning, looking for this plant. I know others felt the same. And so when I got the news, it was um, late on a Friday afternoon when, when Kelly had come down from the mountain. I got an email from her supervisor about the find and immediately before I even saw the pictures, I was like, did someone really find it? I mean, this was just such an incredible find. Super grateful um, to, to, to Kelly for bringing this plant back to us. Does it have a Hawaiian name? It does not have a Hawaiian name that, that we know of yet, but we're one of my interns is, um, is looking back through, um, through the Nupepa Olalo Hawaii, the Hawaiian language newspapers and um, you know other primary sources to see if we might be able to, to find something. But it is very closely related to, um, to, to another plant in the Lobiria family um, whose name is Haha. And so we could possibly use that name if we don't find another name for it. We've been hearing from Namaka Whitehead of Kamehameha Schools and Kelly Barnes, a propagation technician with a group called Three Mountain Alliance. We will have more on this wondrous find of a rare native plant thought to be extinct in the wild right after this break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. You are back with the conversation, and we return to our interview with Kelly Barnes, who recently found a rare native plant species thought to be extinct in the wild. Kamehameha School's Namaka Whitehead picks up the conversation uh, with the efforts underway to replant species in their native habitat. The Volcano Rare Plant Facility has specialized expertise to grow rare plant species, and um, using the seeds that, that we collected, initially they were able to grow 30 keiki that, that we outplanted um, just this past June. What was even more exciting than that outplanting is that it turns out that Callie's original find um, wasn't one plant, but it was actually three plants. And, and shortly after she found them, we built a much stronger fence around those plants. Within the past year, there are already three wild keiki growing under, um, under those wild plants. So it, it's just such an incredible success story that we rarely see with, with our endangered Hawaiian plants to go from being in, extinct in the wild to now having um, six wild plants, 30, 30 out plants is just incredible. And so those six plants, they're more mature. Uh, how tall are they? I want to say that the tallest is about eight feet tall and the other two are, are a little bit shorter. They, they look like, like they might have had some damage in the past. I don't know if, if, if they got um, grazed by some, some, uh, you know, some sheep or, or cattle or something fell on them, but they, they weren't quite displaying their normal, um, their normal growth pattern. So do we have a plant cam up there in that area? <laughs> we don't, but that is such a great idea. Well, we did do an interview with uh, someone who, I think they did have a camera up somewhere, and it, <laughs> the story was, I think, a large uh, tree uh, fell, and it uh, kind of decapitated, you know, a rare plant, and they kind of freaked out, and they immediately, you know, got the helicopter and they went in to go rescue this injured plant and they were able to to save it. 
And that's so often the case with, you know, these species that are extinct or almost extinct is that you never find them again. Or, or, you know, the last one that's left, it's really hard to, you know, to grow its seeds or there's some sort of issue with, you know, not having pollinators or the seeds not being viable or its habitat not being protected. And I think that's why this is just such an amazing success story or such an amazing story you want to share is that this just doesn't happen very often you know, for something to come back from being extinct and show this kind of resilience. And is there a process, Callie? I don't know, you know, when you do find uh, something that you thought was just gone and vanished from our Earth, how do you let the world know? Is there a, you know, protocol for letting folks know that you can take it off this list? This plant, unfortunately, won't be taken off any list anytime soon. But there is a process, and usually that process depends on whose land you find the plant on. And um, the landowner uh, generally then is kind of responsible and in control of, you know, letting the public know and informing the state um, and the other proper authorities. The state does keep a, a list of, of plants that are considered extinct in the wild. And we notified them within a few days of, of the find because it was just so extraordinary. And so, yeah, it, it's no longer considered extinct in the wild. <laughs> Not the most exciting process, but yeah, it's, it's no longer on that list. It, it sparked what, what will be like a, a much longer term focus on, on rare species for, for Kamehameha schools. You know, our, our focus when, when it comes to, to our native ecosystems for a long time has been, you know, trying to preserve the ecosystem as a whole. And, you know, that if we, if we have healthy native ecosystems, then that'll provide the best the best uh, potential for rare species to thrive. But more and more, we've been realizing that, that that's not the case and that, that you know, more direct intervention is needed if we're going to save these rare species that are such a critical part of our cultural heritage. And um, this plant came around, it, it showed itself at the perfect time for, you know, as we were having these discussions. And so going forward, you know, we've already fenced off the, the, the pool that um, that the plants were, were found in. We, we've, you know, spending time in these areas, we, we've come to learn that, that these pool actually, um, they seem to, to provide like some added protection to the plants within compared to the surrounding landscape. We've had some really horrible droughts in Kona over the past couple of decades. And it's incredible that, that the, you know, the makua, the parents of, of, of these wild plants were able to survive through all of that. And it's likely because of these craters that you know, they kind of have this tall stature, they stand up on the landscape, you know, they're able to, to collect more cloud moisture than, than the surrounding landscape because you know, their sides sort of shade the ground within. Um, they're able to retain most of that moisture. And so we're going to use these craters as a repository for um, other rare species that are known from this landscape. And, and the vision is to to try to restore back that canopy, to restore back the, these delicia plants to, to what was observed in the early 1900s so that, you know, someday we can stand at the edge of this crater again and, and see hundreds of them popping through the crowns of the poor trees. And that would be truly spectacular. We've been hearing from Kamehameha Schools and Amaka Whitehead. Uh, she was talking to us about the efforts to propagate a native plant previously thought to be in extinct. We also heard from uh, Kelly Barnes of the Three Mountain Alliance who made that discovery in spring of last year.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening, with start dates through November 22nd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Now it's time to turn our attention to the general election. Today we head to Maui to begin hearing from candidates who are in a close race for the county council representing Kahului. We hear from Buddy Nobriga, who is challenging incumbent Tasha Kama. Long story short, why I jumped in, there's a lot of reasons why people run. My grandfather is a huge influence in my life. He passed away in uh, 2017, so I started getting involved in the community more directly instead of indirectly as our family does as a whole. And I found this unbelievable passion you get from serving. And then my aunt passed away suddenly, and she was a big pillar for me as well. I became you know, the face of the family and the business in the community, and the passion only grew. I was a part of Kipuku uh, Kui, which is a fellowship that takes young leaders around the county to learn about the issues on all sides, very balanced. And that even propelled me more. And then I look at the state of our community, and I said, well, I believe I can make a difference and help and bring uh, creative, innovative ideas to our old problems as well as kind of mend the fences, if you will, or at least break down the fences and mend the relationships to come back together as a community. So for those reasons, I'm in it and and just so happy and blessed to uh, have the opportunity. And what do you see as the biggest challenge for Maui County? I think it's hands down housing. And I know everybody says that, but for me, when you look at all the other problems we face from homelessness to healthcare, even to a diversified economy, it's going to go back to can people afford to provide a safe, comfortable place to live and raise their families? I mean, that's what our community is based on. It's not just a slogan about Ohana to me. It's how I was raised. And I'm a father of four, and my oldest is 11, my youngest is one. And I, I just think about what is it going to be like for the one-year-old 20 years from now or 24 or 25 years from now? Will they even be able to uh, consider this to be their home? And, you know, there's a saying, right, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. So I feel like it's my kuleana to get involved on behalf of not just my kupuna that came before me, who paved the way to serve our community, but for the ones coming up behind me. And I think it's right for my generation to get inspired and to get out there and serve. So. There are a number of people that believe that our problem with housing is tied to the illegal vacation rentals. And Maui County, I think, has kind of led the way in this area. Honolulu just got a setback with you know, their enforcement and plan to roll out new rules this month. What more do you think Maui County can do in this area? You know, it's real interesting, Catherine. That's a great question. Thank you for the question. I've talked to realtors associations. I've talked to economists. I've talked to even people who manage the condos or timeshares in the legal zoned areas. And nobody can give me an exact answer of how many illegal rentals we still have on Maui. I've gotten numbers as high as 4,000. I've gotten numbers as low as 400. And that's a scary thing. And I think data is very important. And I believe our community as a whole has already started to clamp down using the resources of just calling in. If someone has that feeling that they have an illegal vacation rental in their neighborhood, I think more of that would probably be the best way, you know, people to people and having people in the communities feel comfortable enough to say, hey, listen, I think this is one. 
And then we have to put the resources there for us to execute. I think a lot of times, and I know it's not, it's easier said than done, but a lot of times we have legislation or laws in place, but don't have the resources to execute them or support them. I really look into that more to solve those issues. Unfortunately, sometimes that, that's a short-term job because once you solve an issue, then there's no more work to do and you got to worry about that faction. But I'd rather get the solution solved and find another opportunity for those resources to be used. And I think that's how I'm going to approach, especially clamping down the illegal ones, because it is important. It is a factor. And if houses are being used for that, when they could be used to house our local families, I mean, a little bit of common sense on this one, in my opinion. And uh, like I said, I know it's easier said than done, because if it was easy, everybody would have had it done already. But that's how I would approach that. You know, we just recently talked with Mayor Derek Kawakami about the uh, bill to deal with climate change and development, you know, along the shoreline. Maui is certainly grappling with the erosion issues. You know, the the video that we saw surfaced, you know, of all those trees falling in the water was pretty startling. We're experiencing it here at Kailua Beach, you know. Um, I mean, it's a tough one, you know. Manage retreat and what do you do and how do you deal with this? Yeah, it's amazing even just to see how it's happened over time in my lifetime. And it's one of those things that kind of sneaks up on you and then when it happens, you're like, oh my gosh. This is a global issue. And I, I've been looking into other island communities that have faced similar issues. And there's so much different things going on. I think taking the best of what others are doing. I think our issue is more how do you variant or differentiate between how you bring back a residential and a managed retreat. And then you have the resort on the other hand and how they're going to have to manage their retreat. And, you know, be quite honest, and that's the kind of person I am, Kathy. I don't actually have a, a solid set answer, to be honest with you. It's just a, a mind-boggling algorithm that nobody has a clear-cut answer on. I think the awareness is the very first start, but we need to move quicker than that. I totally agree. And the best way to do that is to kind of mimic areas that have worked and and what hasn't worked. And I don't think there's a one size at all. I think in some areas, you're gonna have to build more seawalls or create better vegetation to hold back and keep the shore. And I think in other areas, a retreat is possible, you know? And that's gonna be on a case by case basis, which makes it very hard for legislation because case by case doesn't really make it easy for anybody. But I really think that's the real solution. And because some people don't have a, a retreat, like their property line is on it and they don't have enough property to move back so what happens you just lose the property do we do land swaps what do we do in that sense and is that residential is that commercial and then you have others who can move back or have the ability to adjust and how do you assist them it's a very difficult question very important question i thank you for the question and i wish i could give you the solid this is how we're going to do it but uh, i just haven't found that yet and still forming my opinion on what is the best way to approach it is there anything that you think you plan to focus on, you know, as far as lessons learned from this pandemic? My second pillar is definitely going to be our health care system. On a county level, it's not fully in control of. You have to work with the state to get that kind of stuff done. But for us on Maui, having one hospital during a pandemic, I mean, we've talked about it, but now it's like eyes wide open. And then my other pillar is uh, sustainability economically. And my family's had a 
cattle ranch for five generations on my dad's side. My mom's side came from the taro patches of Kei and Kahakulua. So I have a passion for agriculture and diversifying ag to better help sustain because I do worry about, especially here in Maui County, our food supply is a seven to nine day food supply. I'm very passionate about those two things. I think the pandemic really, with supply chain issues and our hospital being overrun, I think it should be at the forefront, hands down. Those two issues of being able to be um, diversified in our economy with sustainability practices, as well as creating a healthcare system because you know we have one of the largest aging populations as well in the country. And for one hospital with 42 ICU beds, we're just very lucky we live in a place that's beautiful and healthy enough for people to live that we don't, on a regular basis, overrun our hospital. But I think it's time, and that's definitely what the pandemic has eyes wide open moving forward. should be at the forefront of what we do. My business background, my agricultural background, I think those two factors really set me apart. You know, being fiscally responsible, being able to manage budgets and Definitely having that experience on a day-to-day of managing operations as well as the finances is important. And then the agricultural part for me, you know, I've done a lot of it. You know, I've been in the dirt. I've ruined the horses. I've, you know, roped the cows and all that comes with perspectives on that as well. And I think that's what kind of sets us apart. That was Maui County Council candidate Buddy Nobriga who adds that he wants to find ways to support local of working families. He says returning to Maui in 2014 after living in the Bay Area has only strengthened his resolve to do that. Uh, tomorrow, we plan to hear from uh, Council Member Tasha Kama, so stay tuned for that. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, welcoming guests, offering rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby reflecting a blend of Hawaii's tropical colors. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com. One of the lessons that the pandemic has taught us here in Hawaii is the serious problem of our reliance on imported food. So we have turned our focus on the importance of growing food locally and supporting Hawaii's farmers. Next up, we're revisiting a story that took us out into the lo'i. The conversations Lillian Song visited Oahu farmer Hanale Bishop of Homestead Poi, a 12-acre taro farm on the windward side. He shared what he believes are the basic elements needed for self-sufficiency. Taro needs the most pristine of all the elements. Good, clean soil, cold, swift-moving, swift-flowing water, Clear sky, bright sun, clean air, the fire that is your heart to be responsible for it, you know? And when you think about it that way, you know, if you're gonna farm taro, then it's almost like you're taking responsibility for all of those elements too, you know? And, and it comes with that to actually say, we're gonna take care of this place, this water, this land, this air, and ourselves. walking paths. What kind of color is this? Oh, there's, there's about three or four different kinds in here, actually. Palehua, Moikea, um, Lihilihi Molina. And you'll see that running throughout. Some will have a little more than others, but generally we like to plant a certain percentage. This being a semi-commercial farm as well, you know, even though it's a small-scale one, we'll try to plant almost like your recipe, right? Yum! 
that side, how come there was this dry color patch? Is mm -hmm. that a variety or is it a process? Uh, so basically, because we're farming organically, everything's on a big rotation. And you can see the, the wetted fields are the more mature taro. And oftentimes when you plant a fresh field, sometimes you want to keep the water as low as possible just so that the new huli doesn't drown. Huli is, the, is really your seed. It's the cutting of the taro that's going to get replanted. Sometimes the new leaves that come out, and usually it's the first three to five leaves or so, you really want to keep an eye on. And you know, sometimes if the water is too deep and the new leaf comes out, uh, if it touches the water, the water can actually rot it in that spot and then draw it under, you know? And the way it works is the taro will starts off as a cutting or huli. You watch the leaves and the leaf sign will tell you when it's ready to reflood again to its depth. And then the taro will grow up big and tall, big and strong. And then as it shrinks down, it produces corn and the taro or ha start to come off the sides, you know, and then usually that's what's planted on. You know? And you just watch the plant as it shrinks down and shrinks down and shrinks down, the corn will grow. You know, when it gets a little loose in the ground, it's letting you know that it's almost ready to pull. You know, you can even watch the stem and it's almost like birth, you know, like, like the stem, when the stem is wide, the corn will actually be pretty small. And when the stem shrinks down, that means the, the taro underneath is, has formed. With taro, whatever you believe will happen, will happen. And if you believe that it'll grow strong, it will. Same as any seed. Same as any idea or goal that you have. You know, I grew up in Ka'alaya. Uh, I went to Waihole Elementary School in the early 90s during the Waihole water struggle. And you know, the Rapun brothers, taro farmers and oil makers as well, were key figures in that movement. And as a kid, you know, I remember that whole struggle. You know, we would hold hands in front of the gate in an effort to keep the um, water being diverted to the leeward side. That's kind of what got us the exposure towards water rights and, you know, the importance of water as a resource and as a, an important element for our, our life force, even. When I turned around 18 years old, Uncle Paul, he, I remember one day I was up at Malkaloi and he pointed his finger at me and he said, you want a job? Show up at the Waihole Poi factory tomorrow, you know? And I went and from the age of like 18 till about 26, I worked with him off and on at the Waihole Poi factory. And then when I was 26 years old, in 2009, uh, I quit my job as a full-time land surveyor and uh, just started working up here with my father on this farm. By 2010, opened Homestead Poi. So we still operate out of the factory that Uncle Paul and Uncle Charlie built up in Waiohole. Is it also then for other farmers like you, smaller farmers, you all kind of are able to then sell through? There's actually three entities that make poi now. There's the Waihole Poi Factory, which is a restaurant now. And then up on the farm, there's Uncle Paul Dam, Auntie Lori, and then myself. And we all have our own accounts and clients and all sorts. And the beauty of it really is kind of a cooperative when you think about it. Like if I don't have the taro or I'm not going to make poi that week and I can't take a luau order, I'll hand it to them and vice versa. And when you think about it, it's actually a really good system. Instead of competing with each other, we're working together to get a, a good product out and keep each other in business, you know. We did a 
Tarot Festival, before everything shut down, we did one in 2019, and the turnout was great, much greater than we anticipated. And it was really because of the support that all the organizations have right now. And, you know, we put the call out and everybody showed up and we're like, wow, all right, you know. We're gonna relaunch a Kalo Park, kind of like a community park for people to go and learn how to farm taro. It all goes back to, you know, for myself growing up, who would I be without these resources? So what were you doing during COVID? How did it affect you? Hmm. It got real. It got real, man. And I guess that is another good reason for this tower festival and for, you know, for people to be gardening and home gardening because it got pretty real. You know, we got to see what it's like when things shut down and, and when you get tested to, to such a level that, like, where is your food going to come from if things got really, really, really bad, you know? because the shelves were empty for a little while and people were worried. What's unfortunate is that as things get back to normal, I hope people don't forget that farmers worked very hard during that time. And not just that, we worked really hard. Every single channel that we had to offload our produce to people was also almost cut. The whole system was, was more or less severed for a little while. And we, we had to get creative, we had to work extra hard you know, I was lucky to, to have gotten a couple of grants uh, to help me, you know, and I did pop-up markets, I did roadside, we did home deliveries, we did everything we had to to kind of answer the call of people who wanted to connect more with the local food sources. And, you know, if we can continue on that path of strengthening it, you know, it'll serve us better in the long run. And, you know, it'll just be better for all of us uh, Hawaii as a whole and my hope too is that people explore the home gardening and there's so many good things that you can grow why not start with the towel? So what COVID did show us that instead of growing flowers it then behooved people to actually grow food mm -hmm. but is kalo a crop where just anybody can do it seems like one of those specialty crops that's a little daunting it can be um, any, growing anything can be daunting I don't have that much water. Is there like dry land taro? What else could I do to be more sustainable in feeding my family? Firstly, yeah, it can go dry land. Like I said, it's the taro is, like this time last year, a devastating flood came through this farm. And majority of these taro patches were completely flattened, completely flattened. And the taro stands back up and I couldn't really grow any other crops in these fields, especially when you're farming wetlands, even up Malka or, or down by the ocean. A lot of times, especially where water is so abundant, it does come with floods and all those other things that kind of balance out days like this where it's clear sky and, and you know, and you'll still get a crop, you know, and the tower will stand back up and, and you look at that and it, and it brings you so much hope. Like, wow, you know. It is a very forgiving crop and it's very hardy. Um, all farming, all gardening, it's just a reflection of, of yourself at such a deep level that, that you just will learn so much about who you are. That was taro farmer and owner of Homestead Poi, Hanale Bishop, talking with HPR's Lillian Song. They were discussing the important role traditional kalo cultivation has in helping our 
Island State Work Towards Self-Sustainability. That interview originally aired on March 16, 2022. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com.